Hey, everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. I'm your coach, Angela Pugh. Remember, I am your personal sobriety and life coach to guide you through this journey to rebuild your life, to be happy and to have fun on this alcohol-free adventure. And if you listen to all of the transformational stories that we share and listen to my solo coaching episodes with strategies on how to deal with all the struggles that come with rebuilding your life, you'll be well on your way to happy, confident freedom, alcohol-free freedom. You hear a lot of people everywhere, really, any kind of healing or wellness of any sort, you're going to hear a lot of conversation about movement, exercise, working out, all of those things. And you may wonder, can movement really help you unlock your full potential? Like, is that really a thing? Does exercise and movement give you a framework to follow? Not only for an alcohol-free lifestyle, but for for fulfillment, like to really be fulfilled in your life. Today's guest, Coach Blue, definitely thinks so, and he's here to tell you all about it in this episode. Blue breaks down how to align your passion for sobriety with getting moving and healing your wounds instead of just getting by day in and day out. He's a mental health therapist, host of the Addict to Athlete podcast, and founder of the nonprofit Addict to Athlete, which is an action-oriented organization focused on recreating recovery, one healthy activity at a time. Blue's mission is to establish and maintain recovery by erasing negative behaviors and replacing them with positive ones. So you can learn how to help yourself find inspiration and hope and the support that we all need in this journey. Coach Blue is going to break down the importance of healing and the premise of moving from addict to athlete, but not in the way you may think. So let's dive in. Here's Coach Blue. Coach Blue, what an honor to talk to you again. You had me on your podcast awesome conversation. I love what you're doing. So I was really excited to get you on my podcast as well. So thank you for being here with me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. I always love being on this side of the mic. So it's (laughs) it's kind of a a rare treat for me. So thanks for having me. It is fun. You're right. Being on the other side of the interview is pretty fun because you don't necessarily get to share pieces of yourself and your story when you're the interviewer. So it is fun to be on the other side. (laughs) <laughs> you're absolutely right. But no, uh, your your episode has done very well on Addict to Athletes platform. And uh, yeah, I look forward to reaching out to some of your listeners as well. Well, why don't we start with just take a couple of minutes and let everybody know a little bit about you and what you do. 
Yeah, thank you. So yeah, I'm Blue Robinson. I'm a mental health therapist and I'm a substance abuse disorder counselor. So I'm duly licensed in the state of Utah to uh, to help individuals overcome addiction and kind of get them on a path of, of recovery. I like to use the word healing in that. And it's not always been the, I think the, uh, the best word to describe because it came with some flack when I started using that. Um, but my story kind of began with, with a lot of other people who have struggled with addiction, you know, growing up in a very, uh, I think, turbulent family system. I had a mother who was married uh, at age 14. So she was a kid having kids. And, mm-hmm. you know, through divorces and moving, uh, she went through um, seven divorces and husbands. We moved, uh, I moved 26 times before I was 18. Wow. And we were kind of in the grips of poverty. And that's a great recipe for addiction. You know, the abuse cycle, the, the, the abandonment issues, the neglect and all that stuff. And so growing up and moving from high school to high school, school to school, town to town, um, my education really took a hit. And I dropped out of high school thinking that, you know, my life was destined just to be a, 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 a back breaking job with uh, alcohol and substances at night. And thank, thank God that didn't, didn't happen. There was a huge shift when I got a job working with youth uh, who were having troubles and it was a residential treatment center for kids. My job was to simply take them to their doctor's appointments and airports and all this kind of stuff. So I was a courier. And as I'd get these kids in the, in the van, we'd drive them around, they'd be talking about why they were there. And I was kind of blown away that like these kids have, you know, family systems that care enough to send them to get help, even though it was a struggle. And I kind of resonated with that. But a man approached me and said, hey, you're really good with these kids. He's like, you know, you take them to their 12-step meetings all the time. And I'm like, he's like, you should probably look at this as a career. Little known to him, I was a full-bledged you know, addict back then. I mean, I, I lied on my application. You know, I'd go home and drink and I would use substances and all this kind of stuff. Um, but then I started taking the kids to the 12-step meetings. And I'm like, wow, this is this is interesting. People talk about this stuff out here. So I volunteered to take the kids every day to these 12-step meetings. And I just didn't listen, didn't say a word. No one knew I was struggling, you know, but slowly but surely uh, I pushed all that stuff away, started to find some purpose and some understanding of why this all happened. And life took a huge turn. You know, I stopped using in, in, in the, the great year of 1996 and uh, yeah, changed some, some, some course of direction. But then I found myself being uh, a, 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 a sober addict, you know, I wasn't using anymore, but I had no idea that, that the, the, the history of abuse, the lying that I had to tell, because, you know, every couple of weeks we were moving, I had to make friends fast. So lie real quick, because who cares? You'll be leaving next month. And so all these attributes that were holding me back really started to you know, clog up my life. And then I met my wife at that job. She was a rec therapist and I was a lowly courier, high school dropout. And through the grace of God, I found a path to get into this program, to get my adult education uh, diploma for high school, went into college and uh, did fairly well there. It was interesting when I found there's a, a support system between me dating my, my fiance to my wife and her family. And I came out of the shell. And <laughs> it's funny enough that my very first day in actual therapy, my therapist, after hearing my story, said, yeah, you just don't know who you are. And I thought, that's the dumbest thing ever. So I left. I walked down. I gave him a good day, sir, right? And walked down to therapy. And uh, I went back to my wife. You know, we were dating at the time. And she said, well, how was it? I'm like, I'm done. She's like, you can't be done. One session? I'm like, he's that good. And she's like, well, why? <laughs> he said, because he asked me a rhetorical question no one can answer. It's one of those dumb therapy questions. And it was, who are you? And she's like, I know who I am. And for the first time in my life, I was 20, 22 years old, she told me who she authentically was. 
personalities, the character traits, her moral values, her beliefs, all this stuff. And I didn't have any of that. And I was blown away. So I had to go back and apologize to the therapist. And funny enough, you know, that was the catalyst to get me into that, that, uh, that line of work. So for the past 20 couple of years now, I've been doing that and started a program called Addict to Athlete. It's a nonprofit program that we have here in the state of Utah. And, and now outside, we have chapters across the country helping people erase addiction by replacing it with things of greater value like health and recreation, team, relationship, support, all that stuff. And it helped me get clean with recreating, running, mountain biking. And so it kind of was a fluke that it took off. So in a nutshell, that's kind of how I got here. I love that you started working with kids too. I did. I worked with adolescents pretty early in my career and it was so much fun. I mean, I mm-hmm. probably could relate in some of their behaviors a little more than I should have at my age, but yeah. <laughs> like we were uh-huh. on the same page more than I probably was healthy, but, but it was so refreshing. You know, it really is refreshing to hear kids point of view and how they process things and how they internalize things. And I feel like it made me, because this is back when uh, I was counseling and it made, it really made me a much better counselor, even with adults, right. To see all these different points of view. And again, how kids internalize things. It was fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, and the funny thing about it is that was again, 1997, 98, 99. And I still have connections with a majority of those kids. They're all adults now and they have lives of their own. And it's heartbreaking now too, because, you know, me being a courier, I wasn't a line staff, didn't, wasn't, a, you know, in, in the units with them. Um, I gave them a little bit of a reprieve from that. And so I'd let them listen to music, you know, don't tell anybody, but I'd stop and get them a drink now. And then if they needed to, if they were like, want to get a soda or something, let's go. And the thing was, is this relationship based stuff. And I was just a courier. But I'm like, these guys are already in a lot of hot water. They don't need me barking orders at them. Um, but I I hear now the abuse side and the neglect side that they suffered. And I'm thinking, whew, you know, heartbreaking stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't think I could do it now. I don't think I could have – I don't have the stomach now for that because I don't – to be honest with you, I don't really agree with, with that unless it's a last-ditch effort and, 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 and situation they have to be in. But it did teach me a lot about empathy, about understanding where people are, you know, knowing how to, to work with youth. And so I, I would say it's made me a better father because I had some crap examples of, of stepdads, sure. many of them. So, yeah, I owe those kids a lot just to my own growth, too. Yeah, for sure. I feel the same way. What is it for you, like, from how you described your childhood, right, and moving all of those times and step parents and all of those things – Obviously, that makes a lasting impact on you that Mm -hmm. in the professional world we would talk about as trauma. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What was your journey in your recovery with trauma and getting to a place of understanding you had trauma or treating trauma? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. Thank you. Yeah. You know, the interesting factor about that was growing up, I thought it was normal. I mean, you know, my my family system is I have an older brother and sister. They came from a, a dad, you know, the first marriage at 14. Um, obviously, my mother can't make that work. It's 14. She's a kid. So mm-hmm. that marriage f- ended. She married another guy who was an alcoholic. And she had my, they had my daughter, my sister. Her name was Jennifer. And, you know, 
he was a raging alcoholic and that didn't work. So then she met my dad who was uh, a guy in the military, I think. And, um, you know, went to North Dakota with him. I was born in North Dakota. A couple of weeks later, like stick, you know, steal the night. She takes all of us kids back to Utah. And so I didn't really get to know that guy at all. And, you know, if he was walking down the street, I probably wouldn't recognize him. I don't, I just don't know who he is. Mm -hmm. And so what I didn't realize is that my mother had a hard time with trauma too. I mean, there had to have been something going on at home for her to be pushed away at 14, but we thought it was normal. I mean, also all of us kids are different last names. We don't really look the same. And we have like my, my two oldest siblings, they're, 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 they got Polynesian blood in them. So you got these two big Polynesian kids, these two little white skinny kids. And like, you guys are all the same family, <laughs> but it was this cycle of abuse. She married a guy that was named Paul and Paul was the devil reincarnated. He, he used to beat us kids, you know, and put my sisters through hell. And I have scars on my body because of him. And so as I was going to this therapist and I'm like, you know, hey, this is, you know, this isn't anything new. This isn't anything different. This is what you hear every day. And he's like, Blue, that's not normal. He's like, you didn't have a normal childhood. You know, I mean, we would move before boxes were even unpacked. And he's like, that's not stable. You need to have stability. And it didn't really manifest itself until I had my own kids. And I remember like my very first daughter who, who I was talking to about before we hit record, who's helping us with Addict to Athlete. She's 19 now, but when she was an infant, she's born. I'm carrying her around on a pillow, right? And my wife's like, Why are you why are you carrying her like that? I'm like, I don't want to hurt her. Mm. And she's like, she's like, babies are kind of rubbery. They'll be okay. And I'm like, mm. no, that's, and I, that's not what I meant. Because dads hurt kids. And I'm thinking, holding this thing, I'm like, how in the world could I do anything to hurt this thing? And oh my gosh, Angela, it, it was one of these awakenings, you know, that happened. Mm -hmm. And so it was a process of me being able to come to terms and understand about how to not hold my mom accountable because obviously she was hurt and abused too, mm -hmm. but she put us through hell. You know, she put us through hell. There were so many issues that I, you know, I didn't recognize in the moment, but now I can look back at it and be like, what was she thinking? She put us in horrible situations. You know, she, she's, uh, her and I never had a relationship after therapy because I would, all I wanted was for her to say, hey, sorry about that, but she wouldn't right. do it. And so through my own growth of, of becoming uh, a dad is what really kind of made me understand, like, I guess I had really good examples on parents on how not to be. Mm -hmm. So I simply switched and did the opposite. And I like to think, like, I'm a pretty good father right now. I think, you know, all my kids like me. So that's got to be, <laughs> that's got to be some money in the bank, right? You're doing something right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard, I think, when you have any sort of dysfunctional parent or parents, it's a very difficult thing to reconcile as an adult, right? And especially like, I know like you're talking about your own child. I never had my own kids, but I have little brothers that are 10 and 12 years younger than me. So my teenage years were babies, right? And I was a uh -huh. primary caregiver to these little boys. And I had a similar experience like you're talking about where it's so overwhelming how much you can love one of these little critters, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that instinct that you just want to protect them at all costs. Like I never yeah. wanted anything to happen to those babies. And you see just how innocent and amazing they are. And they're just little sponges and you are fully responsible for that, you know, and mm -hmm. in those experiences too, thinking about your own parent or parents who 
weren't that way or seemingly not that way, right? Whatever dysfunction it may be. For some people, it's emotional. It's mental health issues. For some people, it's addiction. I mean, it could be a million things that your Mm -hmm. parents can struggle with, but it's hard to have that understanding of how much you can love a baby and try to reconcile how it seems like they didn't feel that way about you. Yeah. And I'll never, I, I be honest with you, I'll never wrap my head around that. Years ago, we were at a water park here, you know, in, in Utah. And uh, I'm taking my two little girls at the time, you know, because I, I have two boys and two girls. And I'm taking my two little girls and we're, we're walking up the big ramp to go to the big, biggest slide. They wanted to go on the biggest slide. And as I was, I was standing in front of them, you know, kind of waiting in line, all of a sudden I feel this little touch on my back and I turn around and, and I knew exactly what she was going to ask. I have a very big scar on my back from a very abusive stepdad. One day he got carried away with the belt and, and drew blood and I have a scar there. And my daughter looked at that for the first time. She was probably about six and she's like, dad, what happened there? And thank heavens we were like drenched in water anyway, because I'm like starting to you know, get all mm-hmm. choked up. And I'm like, I had to turn around and tell this little girl that her dad, who she thinks is Superman, he still bleeds. Mm-hmm. And here we are on this little like you know ramp going up to the stupid water slide, and I'm having a conversation about how a dad that I had was a little bit heavy with a belt, and when I did something that he didn't like, this is what would happen. And she's giving me the cute little squeeze of a hug, and she's like, "It's all better now." I'm like, "Oh, yeah, it is." So it's those kind of weird things that I'm like, she's never gonna have to know that, right. you know. And I'll be quite honest with you, because of that, I raised my daughters, um, specifically, my, because they're the two oldest, to be able to tell me no. And it was kind of an interesting thing. And I used to say this all the time when they were little to my clients and stuff about, about parent-child relationships. And I'd say, I'd tell them, uh, I want my girls to tell me no. And so if I'll come down and like the, the, the living room's a mess or their rooms are a mess, I'm like, kids, you girls, it's time to do your, your rooms. Let's go. And they're like, no, dad, we're doing this. I would often say, okay. You know, when you're ready, I'll help, but it's got to get done today, but you don't need to do it right now. And little things like that, you know, Mm -hmm. like you eat your food. No, dad, I'm done. Okay. And I always would say when I would teach this little principle that because if they can tell their dad, no, Mm -hmm. the idiot down the street has no chance. Right. Amen. Now, Angela, I kid you not, like several years ago, probably about five years ago now, my daughter, she was 12. My youngest daughter, her name is Savannah. Savannah was walking home from a friend's house. And sure enough, car pulls up next to her, tries to get her to come in. She's like, no, I'm not coming with you. And he grabs her and she screams, let go of me. And she ran home. And I kid you not, like we were, you know, coming home from work. We, we got there just within minutes. The cops came. The idiot drives past our house. And my daughter's like, that's him. Cops go out and grab him. Sure enough, because she was able to say no to me, she wasn't. Uh, like at all in jeopardy to say no to say no to some other idiot and literally it was a teenager high school kid down the street like that tried it and when we found out who he was and i was blown away by that but the coolest thing was when she went to court and this is a 12 year old little girl because he got arrested and the judge says will the victim come forward if she would like to speak and my daughter gets up there 12 years old and she says i'm not a victim (laughs) and the judge was like I'm so sorry. He's like, let me explain why we say that. And she gave him grace. She's like, I want him to get help. He needs to go get some help. And I, I, I did not say a word to her about this. This is her decision. And I'm like, man, how, how easy would it have been for my parents, my mother, even a single mother, 
to take the time to parent out of inconvenience so that we didn't have to have this stuff. So that's how it manifests now. You know, right. I mean, it's can't imagine doing what was done to me to them. Right. Yeah. Amen. And it is so important to to give them that respect at every age. Like it doesn't matter how young they are, but you know, like I say to my nephew all the time, who's about to turn four, like I'll say to him, it's okay to disagree with me. Like it's okay. <laughs> like if I have to tell you no, or say we're not doing something, it's okay that that upsets you. You know, I hear you and that's okay. But even when we're angry or upset, we still respect and love each other. But it's okay. You don't have to agree with me just because I'm an adult. You know, like we can figure it out. And that's so powerful. That was something that I learned working with adolescents too, right? That we do as adults, we have such a tendency to blow them off to dismiss what they say because we know better. And mm-hmm. and we do know better. There's no question. Like we do know better and they're not always making the best decisions, but there are better ways to handle it where you're still giving them validation and respect and kindness and really hearing them instead of being dismissive and you know I, like we do we don't treat them with enough respect truly. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it was interesting, even as, even as an adult, you know, as I was getting married, my mother was getting divorced from her sixth husband. And, um, you know, she met this guy that moved to New York state. I didn't see her for a few years. There was a fallout between her and I, where she tried to get me to, you know, be responsible for $800 cell phone bill. Like when, when I was first married and me having a track record of not being the most honest person, because I had to tell my wife as we were dating, like, I've got issues now. She's like, you need to go get help before we get married. So all of a sudden this phone bill shows up one day right after we're married for 800 bucks. And she's like, you have a secret cell phone. This is like 2000. Like cell phones were a big deal back then. Right. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I promise it wasn't me. And she's like, yeah, I've heard that before. And so I call and they'll figure it out that, yeah, my mother tried to put this $800 cell phone bill in my name and I'd had it. I'm like, I'm done. So I called her up and I'm like, what is this? And of course she's lying to me. Oh, it was your sister that did that to you. I can't believe she would. I'm like, shut up. The guy told me it was you, you know, like Mm -hmm. your name's on there. And she said, I'm not going to take this. I'm like, you're going to listen to me because I'm ready now to have this conversation. Everything that's bottled up now, I've, I've done therapy for a year. I'm, I'm now recently married. This is like two weeks after we're married. And I'm like, how dare you? And she said, you be careful how you're talking to me. Cause, you know, and she said, because uh, I'll never talk to you again. I said, you be careful because I'll respect that. And she flipping hung up on me. As I was getting ready to tell her like, mom, what the crap? She yeah. hung up on me. So that really pissed me off. Yeah. So, you know. Uh, email was kind of still of a new thing. So I had to hand write this letter because I'm like, she can't hang up on a letter. So I flipped and sat and wrote this letter. It's about, about eight pages front and back just, just written, you know, and it took like four stamps to send. But I remember getting ready to send this letter that had everything in it. Like, how dare you? I can't believe you'd do this. Help me understand why you chose this path for us. And I sent it to her. I didn't hear for her for seven years. Wow. Seven years, right? And seven years later, and I started having kids. Started having my own life. And um, seven years later, like I get this little Christmas card in the mail that's like, in the time of Christ, we should forgive one another. And that was kind of it. That was her trying to apologize. Right. But that never, it never, it never rebounded. You know, I mean, she, I would, you know, kind of inquire where she's at, what she's doing, but she was always so just distant and emotionally like, like, you know, disengaged that um, she was actually here once when I was graduating with my master's degree. Now I'm the first one to ever graduate high school, let alone in generations to ever go to college. No one right. thought the, you know, the, the Robinsons was going to go to college. And I, and my sister said, Hey, mom's here. I'm like, fantastic. 
she can come to my graduation. I'll give her that. Like, how cool would that be? Maybe she'll see me finally, right? So I tell her, I, I get her on the phone, uh, which was a nightmare in process. And she's like, when is it? I'm like, it's, it's Saturday. It's at 10 o'clock. She's like, ooh, I fly out of the Salt Lake Airport at, uh, at 4. I'm like, that's fantastic because the arena my graduation's in is literally like a half mile away from the airport. You, you could walk there in, in, in an hour. And she never showed up for it. And I'm like, noted. And in fact, when she passed away this last August, I didn't even know she was passed for several days because no one told me. Yeah. And so I'm like, that was kind of, I think her, I think that was her burden to bear. And I know sometimes it's really hard because I'm like, I'm not angry at her. I get it. Like I said, she had to have her own trauma, Yeah. but she didn't have to keep replicating it with us. And so my relationship changed greatly, but what it did is it allowed me to be, you know, a father and a husband and a therapist and a coach and so many other mm -hmm. attributes. And it, it's hurt. I mean, every birthday would roll around and that one phone call I wish would come never did. So I hated birthdays. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that for the longest time. My wife pointed it out. Um, but I'll be quite honest. Like, I feel bad because I never got that relationship with her. She chose out. I was ready to have it, but she wouldn't allow herself to engage in it. Yeah. Would you say that vulnerability or being vulnerable was challenging for you? Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. One hundred percent. Because uh, you don't know. I watch her, you know, I watch her manipulate people and lie to people. And, you know, like, yeah, you know, I'll have your rent due. I'll have your rent by this Friday, but then that Wednesday we're, we're gone. And so that rubbed off on me. And what happened was I stopped trusting a lot of people, especially men, because, you know, again, men, they were stepdads were, were mean, they were abusive. And so, yeah, it took me a long time to kind of like feel emotionally safe enough to even like challenge someone else in a conversation or invite myself into a conversation. And I have to give a lot of credit to my wife. You know, she, she came from a very different family. Her family saved me. It wasn't just her. It was her whole family. They embraced me. They, you know, they, they uh, had to hear the whole story from me because I'd said some stuff before to kind of protect myself. That was you know, lies and some mistruths and some distractions. And I had to be accountable to them too. And so it was kind of a cool thing that I could be accountable and that they didn't scream and yell and push away, but they embraced. I thought that's odd. It took a lot of years, but yeah, I was able to kind of cross that threshold of like, I'll be a little bit more vulnerable. Like, in fact, I didn't even tell the story at all until I was in college and we had to do a genogram in one of my classes and I plopped mine up on the board. Everyone was like, oh, and I'm like, <laughs> no one's, no one's like this. And so it was kind of one of these things where I'm like, it's okay to talk about this stuff, but yeah, vulnerability in me did not mix. Yeah, but that's what I was wondering because all the circumstances you talked about, obviously there's a, a set of behaviors and, and emotional responses that will come from those struggles yeah. that you endured. And and that vulnerability is really, really hard when you are hurt in that way and you have those wounds. Again, where you know things like trauma treatment therapy becomes so important to heal that stuff mm -hmm. too. And and what really made me curious about the vulnerability, because you've been married a long time mm -hmm. and yeah. there's no way you can do that without getting comfortable with vulnerability. Like you have to be able to show those pieces of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that was something that really did not come natural at all. In fact, you know, if, if you look at the family history, you know, my mother married and divorced you know, up, upwards of seven, six, seven times. I can't, can't keep track before she passed away. Um, my brother married and divorced five times. My sister, six times. My other sister, you know, three times. 
then there's me. And I broke the cycle because I, I finally saw it. I realized that that's not normal. And the vulnerability came because I was sick of running from it. I'm like, what, what is this? Why, why is this happening? Um, that's why as a therapist, I'm also blown away when people come in voluntarily, you know, where they come in, they're like, I've got some stuff on my heart. that's heavy. I got to get it off. Um, and you know, it's been one of these things where if it wasn't for, I think the time, the place, the situation with those youth, with, with my, 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 my fiance, my wife now, I would have. I would have been pre-planned destined to have the exact same right. lifestyle and thought it was normal. Yeah. Um, but even talking like this, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm part of a religious, you know, uh, you know, church out here. And I went on the radio once was talking about this and I was in a leadership position in that church. And uh, the guy's like, he covers the mic. Are you sure you'd be talking about this? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like half of the people that I go to church with come to my addict athlete meeting. So they all know. Yeah. And it was kind of one of these things where they're like, should you be saying this? I'm like, yeah, we need to be saying this. That's why when I started addict to athlete in 2011, uh, I kind of went way against the grain. And in my community, all we had was 12 step meetings mm-hmm. and 12 step meetings were great. Like I said, I got a lot from them, mm-hmm. but I started looking at it a little bit different because I'm like, wait a minute, I haven't been using any addiction, any, anything now for several years. I'm not an addict. It's a part of me. It's not who I am. Mm-hmm. There's no way I'd roll into a meeting and say, hello, I'm blue. I'm an addict when hello, I'm blue and I'm a father and I'm a coach and I'm a son and I'm a brother and I'm a scholar and I'm an athlete. And yeah, I'm an addict, but it's a part of me. And I'll tell you, Angela, that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way here. Mm-hmm. It is. I was the same way. You know, when I got sober, there weren't options. And, yeah. and I love 12 steps, but I'm also mm-hmm. very comfortable calling myself an alcoholic. Like that doesn't bother me. And I think partially because it didn't bother me when I was drunk, right? Like when I was yeah. still drinking, I was already calling myself an alcoholic. So to me, it's just reality, right? And I agree. Like I always say we are a thousand piece puzzle. And that's Absolutely. just one of my pieces, right? It's not even the biggest piece, you know, but yeah. it, it is a very important piece. Like I have to understand sure. that I have a brain that takes the world in differently and processes it differently, right? I have to have that awareness that that is who my brain is, but it's not all of my pieces, you know, it's an important piece mm-hmm. and it's a piece I have to acknowledge, but it's not the end all be all of who and what I am. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that mindset. I mean, again, that's, that's why we talk about it. Like on team addict athlete, you're, you're an athlete, you're an addict moving to an athlete, but that foundation is still there. Like you still have that. So you've got to be careful. You know, people think, yeah. well, you can turn, you know, anything can be turned into an addiction. It's true. You can, you can be addicted to working out and athletics and stuff, Yeah, but that's why we create the balance. That's why it's like, there's more than just athletics here too. And so you're absolutely right. Like and we have to be aware that it's there because even when I was getting clean through athletics and running and all this kind of stuff, there'd be times when I'd be on my bike and I'd be 80 miles away from home, right? just living it up. And my wife's like, hey, you're getting close. We have the wedding reception in, in an hour. And I'm like, oh, crap. Like even Lance Armstrong couldn't pedal that fast. Like I'm, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not coming back for another four hours. And, and so we had to have a conversation about how it was. And at first I was in denial. I'm like, it's good for me. It's healthy. Yeah. Uh, but then I realized like, wait a minute, I'm using this as a crutch. So yeah, yeah. I hear you. Listen, I can take anything too far. 
There's no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. no question. Moderation is not a natural part of me. You know, I do not moderate mm-hmm. anything without conscious effort. <laughs> For sure. For sure. I love it. So let's talk about addict to athlete here for a minute because I want to understand better. This isn't about becoming an athlete, like a professional athlete, or you don't have to be an athlete Mm -hmm. to be a part of it. Like I love you just said you're going from addict moving toward athlete. Explain the premise of addict to athlete to us. For sure. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was dating my wife, uh, and when it, when I went and like confessed all my my garbage and crap to her parents, her dad said, "Blue, he's like, thank you." He's like, he's like, how about you uh, you come run with me? And I'm like, what does that mean? In fact, when I asked my my father in law for the hand in marriage for my my wife, he's like, yeah, you can totally marry her as long as you run a marathon with me. I'm like, sure, done. And so I went to my I went to my wife. She's like, what do you say? I'm like, yeah, he's, he gave me the green light. He's like, all I have to do is run a marathon. And she's like dude, do you know what that is? Like, uh, -uh. (laughs) he wants you to run 26.2 miles with him. And I'm like, Oh crap. And I committed, but Angela was the coolest thing Mm -hmm. because as I started getting to know her dad and I started running with him and we go on these long runs, I never had that as a kid. Never, never had the dad that would show up at a baseball game or whatever. Never had a mother that would care or cheer. So I'm running with this guy, her dad. And he just subtly started to accept me. We started talking, started running, and I fell in love with it. You know, I ran the fir- my first marathon in 2000 in St. George, Utah, and, you know, it was the most amazing thing. And, and for weeks after, I talked to her brother-in-laws about it and her dad about it, and it just became this whole thing. But even before that, in 1996, when I stopped using, um, you know, I had, had, had a really bad rock bottom, really scary one that almost ended in me taking my life. And I got that job with youth, and I started making money. And I'm like, this is weird. I have money. And you know what happens when you have money and you have nothing going on because I'd committed social suicide from all my friends mm-hmm. and everything, pushed them all away. Um, my friends literally were Chandler and Monica and Ross and Phoebe. Mm-hmm. And I, that's all I do. I sit and watch friends all day, wishing I had some. And I had all this money. So I went out and bought this most expensive mountain bike I could find because I'm like, I got to get rid of this money. And uh, it sat there for wall art for quite a while. And then one day I took it out in the mountains. I'm in the middle of nowhere, no water, no helmet. No, I don't know what I was doing. I was riding a mountain bike, supposed to be in the mountains. And uh, these these two guys ride, ride up on me and they're like, dude, are you lost? I'm like, in a lot more ways than one, man. <laughs> and he, they're like, follow us down. We'll show you where the trailhead is. And I did. And I watched and we got down. The guy's like, hey, we come up here every week. He's like, do me a favor. He's like, get a helmet and get get some water, man. Because like, you can't be up here without that. So I thought they didn't ask me about addiction. They didn't ask me if I was a junk. They didn't ask me about this stuff. They saw a mountain bike, even though I was cut off jeans and a, and a, and a tank top. And they're like, yeah, you're a mountain biker. So that's how I started kind of what I call erasing and replacing and erase the addiction by replacing it with becoming a mountain biker. And, and so I did everything a mountain biker would do. I got all that stuff, started riding more. So I was running with her dad. It just became natural. Um, and so with her being a recreational therapist and me going into counseling and therapy, I was working at a job at the Utah County government. I was a, as a government therapist working with these folks. And part of their program in their morning treatment that I was working at was to go to three community meetings outside, you know, treatment every week. And they had to have a little sign off sheet saying they had attended. Well, I come back from lunch one day and I see a bunch of them huddled around the back of a pickup. So I go over there. I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they were forging their sign-off sheets for the meeting. I'm like, how dare you, right? And they're like, blue. They're like, it just doesn't work for us. Like, we get it, but like, we're busy. And I'm like, dude, that's addict behavior and all this kind of stuff. And it kind of hit me. I'm like, all they have is that outlet. 
And if I'm trying to get them to commit to, you know, staying sober and kind of learning these new principles, um, and they're doing this for five hours a day, then they got to go to work and then they got to go to these meetings. When do they have time to be with their families? And so it really kind of perplexed me a little bit. And I thought running, biking, recreation helped get me sober. I wonder if it would help them. And so I said, Hey, you guys want to try something? If you'll come early to group, um, I'll teach you guys how to run. We'll do couch to 5k. We're going to register for a 5k race. It's like three months away. And uh, the coolest thing was it started literally right out the front doors of our building, mm-hmm. this race. And I'm like, so we found the course we'd run. It was called the Chase the Mayor 5K. I went to my bosses and I'm like, hey, I want to try this. And they were like, I don't know, man. They, well, they might pass out. They might die. I mean, remember, these are, you know, these are addicts. And I'm like, I know CPR. It'll be, they'll be okay. You know, <laughs> they gave me the green light to try this. I went down and asked the 30 people, only five people like raised their hands to do this. And so we started, started this group, you know, we called it Addict to Athlete. We went to, they'd show up early, we'd stretch, we'd talk a little bit, I'd go out and I'd train them, but the craziest thing started to happen is as we were running and training, all of a sudden, they're starting to do therapy with me out here as we're running. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what is this? You guys were in my office, my feng shui, you know, like water fountain and dimly lit, lit, lit area where we can just be in emotional, you know, like you guys are brick walls, but out here you're talking and they're like, I don't know. But uh, we do this every day and we're training for this Chase the Mayor 5K. Um, there was a girl, her name was Janice and we're training with Janice and, um, she's running and I'm like, she's like, blue, I gotta stop. She's like, coach, I gotta stop. Cause now I moved from therapist to coach. Right. And she's like, coach, I gotta stop. I'm like, Janice, let's run to that red pickup. It's about a half block down the road. We run to this red pickup and I'm like, Hmm, Janice, let's run to the corner. Cause I could tell she still had a little step in her. So we run to the corner and she's like, I gotta stop. I'm like, now nah, let's go to that stop sign. She's like, ah, so we go to the stop sign. I'm like, one more, Janice, let's get to that park at the end of the road. And we get there and she stops and just starts bawling. And I'm like, ooh, crap, I'm in trouble. I might've broke her. And she stands up. She's like, why do I always do this to myself? I always give up when I know I have more in me. I always do this. I give up on my family, my kids, my husband. Why do I do? And I'm like, holy crap, she's like experienced. And I had no idea the connections that she was starting to make by, she wasn't tired. But her mindset was give up when things get a little bit hard. And she's having this epiphany. And I'm like thinking, is this good? Is this bad? It was things like that. And I was like kind of blown away by it. So here I'm thinking I'm making this whole new modality of therapy. I'm like, this is weird. Like what's going on here? Day of the race comes, five guys show up. Their families come to watch because none of them believe they can do it. You're you're an ex-heroin addict. How can you just? They gave the mayor of of Provo, Utah, who's who's, uh, John Curtis. He's now one of our congressmen in D.C., um, they give him a two minute head start. And I guess the gimmick was to run by and slap the mayor on the butt on the way by. I don't know. My five athletes show up. They say, go, the mayor takes off two minutes later, they take off and all but one caught him. But the craziest thing was before we started, they gave this kid handed out shirts that said addict to athlete. And I'm like, Ooh, you guys sure you want to wear those? Because anonymity. And they're like, no, we're proud of this. I'm like, okay. As they passed the mayor, the first guy's name was Tyson. Mayor's like, whoa, 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 addict to athlete. What's that? And Tyson's like, yeah, I'm in recovery. I'm an ex-heroin addict. And I can only imagine the mayor of Provo was like, how am I getting beat by an ex-heroin addict? Like, I better (laughs) bump up my training. But all of them but one had that conversation with them. And they came, they finished, and I was cheering for them. And they'd never been cheered for like that by Mm -hmm. complete strangers just because they were doing something. Their families were blown away. And I thought that was it. That was a good experiment. Uh, The mayor contacted my bosses um, at the county and the county commissioners. And... um, I go on Monday and I get called up to my boss's office. I'm like, oh, crap. One of them did something dumb. Maybe one of them peed on someone's lawn. I don't yeah, know. Right. <laughs> They're like, hey, Mayor Curtis, talk to us. We love this program. We want you to keep doing it, will you? And I'm like, 
yeah, that was in 2011. Now, 12 years later, we've got thousands of athletes, programs all over. It's a nonprofit in and of itself. And what I realized is that running mimics what EMDR therapy does. And I had no idea what that was back then until I got trained on it. And so I use it now in my private practice, therapy and running and stuff to help people get out of that comfort zone. And they'll do it without even knowing it's happening. So Mm -hmm. kind of a cool entryway to this. But yeah, it's not about bigger, better, faster, stronger. It's about showing up and having a team support you. Mm -hmm. There's such a therapeutic component. Walking is the same way, right? And I read this in a book years ago when I was young, still drunk. Like it was a long, long time ago. And it was the guy writing a book about all of his different travels and he had gone somewhere and was with this tribe. And one of his takeaways was whenever they would have an issue or like a parent would have an issue with the child in this tribe, there wasn't screaming, yelling, you know, grounding, timeout, anything like that. They would take the child and go for a walk. And yes. The guy that wrote the book talked about, he's like, that's when I learned the therapeutic value of walking and how it can break down so many barriers, right? Because, and I tell all my couples, when I work with couples, I tell them to do this because all of a sudden there's a lot of equality because you're walking side by side. You're, there's not the anxiety and the pressure of looking at somebody face to face when your, your anxiety is high, their anxiety is high, tension is high. It's a heated conversation. You're disagreeing, right? When you're walking and you're side by side, you're equals, you're on, you're on objective grounds, right? There's no, you're all in equal territory and you don't have to look at each other, right? Which allows your defenses to come down a little bit. And you're walking, getting that bilateral stimulation, which is what the component Mm -hmm. of EMDR is. And it's just this beautiful process that allows people to really communicate and connect on a much deeper level. It's incredible. Yeah, you know, it, and it has been, I mean, all these years later and, you know, it's still growing. I mean, it was, again, even kind of a gimmick to let me go running at lunchtime even. But uh, it was an interesting thing, too, because it changed the dynamic of me being a therapist with the client. And, and I talked to our state licensing, you know, who goes over, it's called Doppel, who's over all of our licenses. And I'm like, I want to make sure this is okay, because it could be considered a dual relationship in a, in a few different ways. And the guy up there is like, well, uh, are you forcing them to run? I'm like, no, well, I kind of think running is for criminals, but, you know, we do it. And he's like, well, then you're fine. And I thought, this is kind of wild. This is a different approach because mm-hmm. we're in therapy in the morning and then we're out here running. Um, but the coolest part was, Angela, the, the, the neatest part was that it, they started bringing their kids because mm-hmm. we started this little meeting afterwards. I thought, well, this is going to work for them. Let's make it a little bit bigger. Let's make it a little more organized. And so we'd come in, we'd have like a 20 to 30 minute kind of conversation. You know, we'd, we could cross talk, we could do everything. We'd talk about recovery. It was independent of, of the 12 steps because I respect those and I want that to be that. And um, did some psych education stuff, did some motivational things. And it was kind of funny because it became such a motivational thing. These kids, these, these, these athletes of mine, these clients are bringing their kids. I thought that is a kind of an honor mm-hmm. that they feel safe enough to bring their kids here. Because I've seen kids in some meetings and I'm like, you know, but they, they brought them. And it was kind of cool because now they're having time with their kids. And so they're, they're with the meeting and then they're out running with their kids. That's, another, that's an hour of just unadulterated time just with them. 
And so we started the Addict to Athlete Minor League. It's the 18 year and younger group. And this is the, all we do is support the guts out of these kids. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get them into races and events. We'll teach them how to swim. There was one time when my athletes came up to me and said, coach, my son wants to play football, but I have all these court fines. I've got all this stuff. He's like, I can't pay it. I'm like, how much is it? I had no idea to play high school football was like 400 bucks. Mm, and I'm yeah. like, I'm like, well, you have a team here. You know, your job, you know, is to have an addict athlete sponsor your kid. You don't need to tell them where it comes from, but your job now is to be the first one to show up at the game and the last one to leave. You bring the orange slices, whatever high school kids eat after that. I'm like, I want you to go be a fan. And I want you to be a supporter. And it was cool because we kind of lost that guy because he started hanging out with his kids and doing all the stuff and didn't need the program anymore because he, he was that person now. And so it was kind of this cool kind of like just buildup of, of, you know, what this can do. And so we do more than just running. We do a ton of service because that's a huge part. So aid stations for races, trail cleanups, speaking engagements. We do a ton of stuff. Uh, you know, the court systems love us because it's action oriented. You can tell if they're showing up or not. We have one at the state prison, which was kind of crazy experience. I got invited to their first 5K. It was the most exclusive 5K I ever ran because it was 30 loops inside their little outyard mm -hmm. court. And as we're running, um, the inmates are, are, you know, they're just, they're free, you know? Mm -hmm. And one of the guards pulled me aside afterwards and was like, I've never heard them cheer for each other. This is kind of wild. And mm -hmm. so there's something about movement that I think, he I know, heals people. And that was kind of the premise of it. I love that. That's incredible. Do you think it's important as a helping professional to always be engaged in doing your own work? Mm, 100%. 100% for, for a few different reasons. Um, you know, Addict Athlete became my full-time job. Like you know, we did this for, we did, we did, it's a free community program. Um, you, you don't make a lot of money when you do things for free. And what happened was, is you know, I had a big boy job with doing therapy. And then until we got grants last year, we were 11 years and before we got our first grant, um, it was a dual kind of job. But it was every time I would try to hone it in or maybe do less, something would happen. But what happened was, you know, addict athlete, we've had hundreds of, we've had thousands of athletes and a few of them haven't made it. And so I remember we had one gal, the very first time um, we lost an athlete was probably one of the hardest things for me, but the second one was even worse. But the first one, his name was Brandon. And Brandon, I had the first five athletes, Brandon was number six. And, you know, Brandon was a natural athlete. He was just amazing. And we were up at Salt Lake doing this run and I'm waiting for them to finish, um, cheer him on. And all of a sudden I see Brandon pop around the corner and he's first. And I'm like, holy crap, one of my athletes is going to win. And we're cheering and there's tons of people. And then I see him kind of stop. And I'm like, what's going on? And he looks over like, like he's tying a shoe. And I'm like, Brandon, take your shoe off. You're like 200 <laughs> yards away from finishing. Like, go. And he's messing with his shoe. He's doing something else. Another guy pops around the corner and passes him. I'm like, what? Then another guy and then somebody else. Then he pops up and kind of jogs in. And I'm like, dude, what was that? He's like, you saw that? Yeah, we all saw that. You're right there. And he's all blue. He's like, I didn't want to win. And I'm like, why? Brandon, you were there. Why didn't you want to win? He's like, he's like, I didn't want anyone to think I cheated. I'm like, did you cheat? He's like, I don't think so. I'm like, Brandon, if you ever do that again, I'm going to pull you by your ears across that line. you know. <laughs> but what happened was, is here's this kid who has been an addict his whole life, who's been downtrodden and pushed away and neglected. And for the first time, he's going to do something amazing. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want to think anyone thought less of him. So he stopped. He took a knee. And I'm like, how dare you? But it makes a lot of sense, right? It's like, I don't want the, I don't want that because 
they won't believe me. I'm an mm-hmm. addict. And now oh, it pissed me off. Um, the next time he did great, we won his race and stuff. And then I didn't see him for a while. And I was up there doing the next race up at the county, at the state prison. And I saw Brandon. I'm like, ah, this is where you've been. What happened? And he'd gotten in trouble, had a relapse, got caught, tried to run from the cops. And he's a pretty good runner. So we got pretty far. Um, but he's like, as soon as I get out, I'll call you coach. And then the next time I heard from him was at his funeral. He got mm-hmm. out, didn't get a hold of us and passed away. That was hard. But the hardest one was Carly. And Carly was one of my dear athletes. She was so involved with this team. She was engaged with the minor league. The minor league kids loved her. She was so involved. She brought her whole family to this team. Um, and, and like her mom, her dad, her uncles, her, her siblings, because she loved it so much. And at the time, I was an owner uh, of a treatment center. And she'd gotten some, in some trouble a couple years later. And we got her into the treatment. Um, worked through some stuff she never worked for before. Was doing great. Got out. Got to my sober living house. And um, a couple of weeks later, she overdosed on heroin. And that was the day I almost shut this whole thing down because my impression was if I can't save Carly, what am I even doing here? Right. I had to be the one that called her mom and her dad, who I knew very well, and say, Tyson, Savannah, on my watch, I lost your daughter. Whew. And one of my dear friends, he pulled me aside and said, Blue, you're not God. Mm-hmm. You don't get to make those decisions. That's right. And he's like, all you have to do is keep showing up because there's hundreds of other people that need what you're doing. That was hard. Mm-hmm. It was so hard. But I had to, you know, it's like this, Angela. Who heals the healer? Mm-hmm. I'm the head coach of this whole team. I'm the therapist of this program. I'm the father to my family. Like, who heals me? Right. Right? I had to go. I had to go way to that spiritual side too, and start running again, start biking again, start getting right with myself, start having talking to God again, start talking to people that, you know, I thought, you know, oh, you, you can't help me, you don't know, but like let people in because it was getting that old stuff again, right? Those right. walls we used to right. build up. I'm like, who can heal me? Like, I, you know, I heal, I heal all you people. That was a wrong mindset, and the team healed me. My family healed me and God healed me. And so one of those things where, yeah, you've, you've got to take care of yourself. And so I have to do my workouts. I have to run just to kind of let that stuff go. Because if I'm teaching it and preaching it, I should probably do it. And it works. I'm telling mm-hmm. you, it works all the time. But you got to be real with yourself. You can't hide from it. And when the alarm mm-hmm. goes off, you got to get up and go. That's one of my favorite things about being a helping professional is that it keeps me so on top of my game myself, right? Because I feel the same way that you do. Like, I don't ask my clients to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. You know, like I'm in this 150%. And sometimes it seems like people are a little surprised when I'll refer to my coach or my sponsor and people are like, you're still doing that? I'm like, yeah, are you kidding me? Because you're you're never problem-free, right? It's like some of my behaviors improve and get better in some areas, but as I'm improving those, then they're slipping in other areas. And then I go over to those areas and I focus on improving those, and then other things start slipping. Like you're never finished, and -hmm. you're always having life experiences, and life is not easy, Life will yeah. beat you down. I mean, it comes at you from every angle every day. So you're always going to have things to work through and disappointments and and bitterness, resentment, and relationships ending and losing jobs and deaths. And I mean, you're always going mm-hmm. to have life things to work through. And yeah, and I love that. It, it just, my clients keep me so on top 
of my own game and my own mm-hmm. spiritual fitness and just really being a coach just keeps me so accountable on a level that I've never had before. You're so right. I mean, that's that, that to, to point and check, like years ago, one of my, my, one of my very first athletes, the original five, like, you know, we, I was running with him, working with him. He's doing great. His kids were in state's custody for some substance abuse issues. His marriage was kind of falling apart through the process of all this. He started getting that back. Well, one day, um, you know, early on the team's team's inception, uh, uh, we were going to go run this little winter run, you know, no big deal. It's a 5K. They call it the icebreaker run or whatever. And, um, you know, it, we had a nice warm winter that year. It was like, you know, raining that day. So the day the race happens, I look out the window. I see it raining. I'm like, I don't want to get up and go run in the rain. So I, I'm a wuss. And so instead of calling my athlete, I text him I'm like, hey, buddy, I'm not going to make it today. Uh, but hey, good luck. And throw, throw some pictures up there on, on Facebook and uh, good luck. He's like, okay, coach. And so later on that day, you know, I sleep in, get up, do my thing. Later that day, I see the picture. And the picture is him standing next to his daughter, recently returned from the state. And I'm like, because I was afraid to get wet, yeah. I missed the whole reason he was doing this. Right. And I had to go eat some humble pie and I had to say, hey, man, I'm sorry. I said, the next race you want to do, I'm I'm all in. And so he's like, okay. He's like, I want to do the Pony Express 50 miler. I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> I'd never run over a marathon and I never planned on doing an ultra run, but I made a promise. And literally, you know, that next October, here's he and I yeah. and all of our team supporting us. And we ran our 50 mile ultra marathon. And I thought there's something to your word and keeping it like that. And, and right. you know, I he made me an ultra runner. I was never going to do that. But because he wanted to do it, mm-hmm. and I, you know, graciously offered my 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 soul to him, uh, <laughs> I became one, and I and that was like now the you know the the Jedi and the Padawan, right? I'm like, there's there's he's teaching me things, um, but like you said, out in the middle of this Pony Express 50 miler, mile 30, it's flat as a pancake out there, out there in the West Desert of Utah, and you look like you can see the ending, but it's so far away, it's like that the horizon, and I remember a. a well, a good friend of mine taught me this principle about we're always moving. Like you said, we're always moving to that horizon. If I'm like, we're going to, we're going to get to the horizon and that's going to be the end, right? Just get to the horizon. But once you get to that location, that spot, the horizon moves. Yeah. And you, know, you could, you could see it in this, in this huge void, this gap in between where we started and the finish line. And I was out in the middle of nowhere and I'm like, this is crazy. This is what we're talking about. I always want my athletes, my family, myself to go to the horizon, but it's going to change. But you can always turn around and see how far you've come. You can mm-hmm. see those roadblocks in life, those monuments in life, you know, the time that you did that or the time you did this, when you turn around and look how far you've come. So it's one of those concepts, like you just said, about keep moving forward. There's always going to be something, but it's not. It's never truly over. Mm-hmm. There's no finish line. <laughs> nope, there's not. Blue, what a great conversation. Thank you again for coming on yeah. and talking to us. For everybody listening, I will link Addict to Athlete in the show notes so you can get there right from your podcast app. And Blue, thanks again. I appreciate you. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. Candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.